the human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. Rates of unhappiness are skyrocketing. We are anxious, fragmented, and drowning in an overwhelming sense of meaninglessness. It should be clear to all of us that for all the promises of modernity, we don't seem to be better off when it comes to our overall health. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now for your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. Christian. Hi there. So this is cool. I'm with two of my favorite people. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Christian. I'm Frank. Hey, Frank. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. I just see that the, uh, for some reason, the clarity of my image is not very good. Ah, don't worry about it. It's fine. I mean, we can see you. And so that's, and we can hear you loud and clear. That's all that matters, right? Okay. Okay. So oh, good. Yeah. So Christian, I mean, you know, I, I told Frank about you and, and I guess, you know, as usual, we can um, discuss how we met and uh, how long we've known each other, which is pretty much for an extremely long time. <laughs> well, I suppose it's all relative, right? So what are we looking at now? Probably two decades. I would think close to that. Very likely. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, Frank, just some backstory on, on that and, and how I, came into contact with Christian's work is I was um, just in a bookstore one day and I was looking through books in the philosophy section and I pulled out a book that was written by this guy named Christian De Quincey I'd never heard of. And just randomly, I'm like flipping through the book and I land on one page, right? It could have been any page, but this is the page that I landed on. And it was all about the things I'd been thinking and talking about as, you know, the body as a natural intelligence and how we don't look at the body in that way and that everything seems to be head-centered in the Western world. And pretty much Christian explained it better than I ever could. And I was like, I got to get to, I got to get to know this person, right? I got to get in contact. And obviously, well, the rest is history. So it's been, yeah. it's been it's been fantastic, and and obviously you know again the other side of this is that I've been really lucky to have worked with Christian in different capacities, and we've we've taught in a few places around the world, um, here in Thailand too, because that's where I am right now at Tree Roots Retreat. So Christian's been here too. So yeah, we've 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 done some really cool things together. So I'm excited to be able to introduce you to Frank Christian, but at the same time to have a fantastic conversation. And uh, I think you have a, a lot of insight to to add to this. Oh, wonderful. I'm curious to know how you and Frank connected. Well, c- kind of a similar thing, actually. I mean, Frank, how long have we known each other? Probably about the same well, amount of time. Say, probably about a couple of decades also. I, yeah. I can't remember what year it was, but, uh, but Rodney brought me all the way over to, um, to Johannesburg to talk and so that was uh that was quite an epic journey for me and, and really exciting and so we've been friends ever since 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, just like you, Christian, I mean, Frank has written some really amazing books about, you know, the human animal, the, the crisis that, that we're going through and how we've become disconnected from our true nature. He's written a lot about that. And and, and that was kind of, I guess, the, the impetus for me wanting to know Frank's work. And, and as Frank said, right, I, I brought him out to South Africa and it was a fantastic time. And yeah, we've been friends ever since. So it's pretty cool to be able to connect you two and have a conversation with you both. So I'm excited about that. So if you're happy, Christian, can we kind of like, I guess, start meandering into this thing, jump right into it? Yeah, sure. So I, I guess in a nutshell, like what, what myself and Frank are trying to do with this podcast, the, the Human Animal Project podcast, is kind of look at where we are right now, especially for most of us in the modern world. What are the things that, we are confronting that we feel that is removing our innate wildness. And then at the same time, is there anything we can do about it? And I guess you have your own ideas about this, Christian. Like if you have to think about the modern world right now, what would you say is some of the major problems that we are facing as quote unquote modern humans living in this modern world, but still with a caveman brain? Oh, just a little question like that to begin. Um, sure. <laughs> well, the short answer to that, I think that the main problem is, well, I was going to say the human species itself, but I'm going to take that back. It's not the entire species that's the problem. It's a particular subgroup called Western civilization. And of course, that's now global. So the industrial mindset um, is the, the major problem. And I in my work, I trace that back to the idea that there's something unique and special about being a human. Typically, in modern society, that assumption is used to actually distinguish us from the rest of the animal world. So the... The title of this podcast, the, the Human Animal, is intriguing to me because it actually says what needs to be said. Mm -hmm. is that we are animals. And the fact that we're human doesn't um, negate that. So the main problem, I think, is at one point, some group of our ancestors began telling themselves a story that the human species is unique. And, and typically, centuries, millennia ago, that meant we were selected and chosen or created by God. And we were God's creation and God's emissaries on this planet. And, and that whole notion of elevating the human species above all other species, I see as the major problem today, that if we can shift our mindset to recognize that we are animals and that we are in this network of living systems and that we're no more special in that network than any other species. And therefore we will change our behavior in the world. We won't assume that all other species in the natural world are there for us to exploit for our own desires and purposes. Until we get to that, I really don't think there's much hope for the future of our species. And unfortunately, 
that also applies to countless other species that we will destroy the planet, not just for human habitation, but for many, many other species as well. And that's that's the, the real tragedy. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I think you're right on the money. What do you think, Frank? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say that there's a real paradox in that anthropocentric view of the world that we, that we hold. And that's that if we build this pedestal and we put ourselves on top of the pedestal and it makes us feel good for a short while, but it's ultimately really destructive because it puts us out of touch with our life support. And so somehow we have to resolve that paradox and get off the pedestal. And a lot of people don't want to do that. It's a very radical notion, I suppose, in the modern world. Yeah, well, I it's, guess, it's, yeah go, sorry, Christian, go for it. Just going to say, yes, it is. It's radical in the modern world. I mean, modernity is built on that assumption of the uniqueness of the human species. And, and that uniqueness is attributed to various attributes, like we're the only species that has language. That's not true. We're the only species that can reason. That's not true. We're the only species that can create art. That's not true. And so on. Every single attribute of the human species, we can find some trace of that in other species that has changed and evolved in our species. But that doesn't make us particularly special. Now, when I've given lectures and I'm, I, I come down on this notion of human specialness, typically someone in the audience will object to that and they will point out all the wonderful achievements that our species has made science philosophy religion cosmologies and you know the list can go on and on and on and i say yes of course we do some things that are unique but so does every other species do something that's unique and there's nothing particularly unique about our uniqueness and the way I usually phrase that is to say, yes, of course, humans are special, but so is every other species special and unique. That's what makes them a distinct species. But there's nothing especially special about human specialness. And that's the point that needs to be emphasized. Yeah, that's powerful. I was just thinking about that. You know, how do you make that shift? How do you get people to understand what you just said? Because for the vast majority of the people that we're talking about, especially in the Western world, they're living in urban environments, they're living in cities, largely disconnected from the natural world. You know, they go to a supermarket, they don't really, they have no idea where and how that food was sourced. So they, they're completely disconnected. And I guess when you're trying to bring this argument across or this position across to somebody that is within that kind of contained frame, it's very, very difficult to shift their perspective for them to see what we're saying. So I guess all the time I'm thinking about, you know, how do you, how do you make that happen? Yeah. I mean, that's a crucial question. I mean, it's crucial because it's a life or death question. Literally, if we don't learn how to make that happen, it's all over, probably within two or three generations. And um, and I'm not actually sure that that's enough time to, to turn the ship around. Um, I mean, we've been living with this mindset since the Enlightenment. Some people might go further back and say since the Greek philosophers discovered reason. Um, so that's a long time. And we don't have 
a similar amount of time to try and readjust things and and um, get people to think. Now, the, what might help is nature itself. Mm-hmm. As we continue to destroy the natural world, it is responding. Now, I'm not necessarily implying that it's responding intentionally, but it may be responding mechanically. I actually suspect that there is an intentionality behind it, but that's a a different conversation we can have. But even if we just go with it's responding mechanically, that as we disrupt the ecological system, nature will attempt to restore balance, like creating changes in temperature until we have the climate crisis. And we, you know, we're seeing more and more the 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 dangers, the effects of disrupting the natural world, that it's coming back to bite us big time. So maybe enough people will be woken up by the, the disruptions to the environment to realize something has to change. And if there are people out there saying that what has to change is how I think about my relationship to the rest of the world, maybe it's time for me to start paying attention to that. But that's that's a long, that's usually going to be a long, slow process. Um, and unfortunately, when a crisis happens, the typical initial reaction is to go into denial. And so um, after denial um, will come the, the pain of, of recognizing that denial actually doesn't protect us from the natural consequences of the climate crisis. And then we would move into the next stage after denial, which would be probably bargaining or wishful thinking that, well, maybe it won't happen to us, or maybe somebody, technology will save us. Somebody will come up with the crucial bit of technology that will extract carbon from the atmosphere and everything will be hunky-dory. That's that's the bargaining mindset, but that doesn't help either. So we really need to accept that we have messed things up, mainly because of our hubris, our assumptions that we are the superior species on the planet and, and might is right, and therefore we have the right to exploit nature for our own purposes. That has to change. And um, if I'm going to be really honest, I'm not optimistic that it will change in time to turn things around. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that, Christian, I mean, the thing that stands out for me is embedded within that framework is the actual economic system that all of us have become accustomed to, right? Where this idea of constantly wanting things we we don't actually need. So consumption is the ultimate end goal. And when if that's the end goal, then it's very, very hard to get people who are just trying to survive day to day, just trying to get through to the next day, just as far as feeding themselves that's really difficult for them to see this big picture. And I pretty much see most people in denial. I mean, when I'm talking to people and they're telling me about the struggles that they are having, be it with their mental health and their well-being, and I point out that actually <clears throat> the problem is not so much the fact that, you know, you're not feeling great. The reality is, is that's the, the actual environment, the system that you're in that's creating that. And I'm always reminded by uh Krishnamurti, right, who's a very famous spiritual teacher, and he said there's no, it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Sure. Yeah. 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 
You know, I, I think another obstacle here, which is similar to denial, is the people who study stress, one of the reactions that they identify is what's called reversion to the familiar. And the more you stress people, the more they go back to what they know. And right now, that's Western culture. That's capitalist industrial culture. And so as stress intensifies, people will have even more of a tendency to go back to what they know. And that's what's frightening, too, because uh, that we need the change and it's hard to do when people are under stress. So to put it another way, what we really need to be doing now is, is taking care of people so that they will have the capacity to be creative and to be changed. Yeah, I mean, this brings up um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Again, of course, as long as we, we need to take care of the basic needs of food and shelter, we're not going to have a lot of time to spend thinking about these larger issues like the climate crisis, even though that's affecting our access to food and shelter. Um, so to come back to, to your original question, you know, I'm going to rephrase it or paraphrase it. You know, mm. What can we do to, to change things? I'm not sure there's much we can do as individuals except what, what we're doing right now, which is whenever we have an opportunity is to stand for how we perceive the reality and to communicate that and to let people know that business as usual isn't going to work, that it's going to have to change, and then invite other people to look at their own lives to see what they may individually change, both in terms of their behavior, but also in terms of their attitudes, their modes of thinking, the values that they possess, um, and to learn to question authority. That's a really important part of this. <clears throat> Yeah, and question the status quo, right? Because as yes. Frank was saying, right, always that default to the familiar. Yeah. And yeah. I'm amazed. I'm just like, even, I mean, Thailand right now, and, and Christian, you've been to where the retreat is. And if I take a walk down to the beachfront, of course, there is stuff coming in during the tide, right? You can see the plastic bottles and all that kinds of stuff, right? The pollution is very evident. But what astounds me is how people on the beach that are enjoying it just leave all their stuff there like all the trash i mean every day i go down there it's like i just feel like i'm in a sometimes in a giant trash heap even though there are bins there are dustbins right there people don't kind of you know take that two seconds to go put it in and i'm just like wow i'm like what is that right i mean is that just an education thing i mean surely it can't only be that. But what it tells me is that we are so, as a human animal species, we are so disconnected from our environment that even the environment that we place ourselves in to enjoy, we still destroy it. Even though there's ample opportunity to, to not do that, right? Like the example of actually just throwing it in the bin. We've yeah. forgotten, basically. It's, it seems to me that we are collectively suffering from amnesia. Because when you look to indigenous cultures and the way that they did and still do in, in parts of the world, perceive the world, they don't have that way of, of, of seeing things, right? For them, everything is interconnected. I was watching, even yesterday, we were watching a, a documentary 
and it was a indigenous tribe if i remember correctly it was up in cambodia somewhere and they see the trees as kindred spirits and if you cut a tree down bad luck is going to happen to you right and this has been part of their culture since the beginning of time so what they do then is they look after their environment and by not cutting down all the trees they then have access to the ability to forage and to hunt as they always have but even then you know this particular person that was doing the documentary was saying I'm in this amazing setting where these people really understand what it is and they roll, you know, on this planet, but I can hear chainsaws in the distance. So it's just a matter of time before that encroaches on them. And as much as they would like to keep their way of life, it's inevitably not going to be able, they're not going to be able to, because how do they stand up to the might of the kind of, you know, industrialized, capitalist, consumption mindset. It's, it's all in, encompassing and just completely takes over everything. Yeah, exactly. And, and that brings up um, another distinction that I like to focus on and emphasize in, in my work, which is the what I call the two modes of consciousness. I mentioned earlier that, you know, that the root of the problem is industrial civilization the industrial mindset and as you've just pointed out the the counterpoint to that is the indigenous mindset where the there's the recognition of our relationship with the natural world at every level and when we experience not just think but when we experience that we are part of that and that it nourishes us and it speaks to us and and it celebrates us and we celebrate that's a very different way of being in the world than in the industrial mindset. And so um, I refer to the industrial mindset as post-conquest consciousness. This is a term I borrowed from an anthropologist from Stanford called um, E. Richard Sorensen. He talked about the difference between pre-conquest consciousness and post-conquest consciousness. The, the conquest refers to when the Europeans came over to the Americas and basically brought with them the, the Enlightenment, the rational way of thinking, couched in, paradoxically enough, couched in religious terminology, but it was still considered rationality. And so when they confronted the indigenous peoples, they were conditioned to relate through the post-conquest mindset, which is about dialectical. It's about presenting an argument. And if somebody comes back with a counter-argument, then you shoot that down. So there's a conflict built into the very nature of rationality. It's about it's a dialectical process of um, confronting one thesis with its antithesis in the hope of arriving at some higher order synthesis. Sometimes that happens. But it's... Um, it's overused as a way of relating to people. That's not the mindset of indigenous people. They don't relate to each other through dialectic. They re relate to each other through dialogue, where instead of winning an argument, as is the case with the post-conquest consciousness, they're interested in what feels good for the collective, what feels good for the community. So in, in that mindset, I am already instinctively motivated not to do something to upset you. And so unfortunately, 
when the post-conquest mode meets the pre-conquest mode, the post-conquest is a dominating mode of consciousness. That's his instinctive stance. Whereas the instinctive stance of the pre-conquest mode is to feel for the other and allow the other to be exactly what it is. But if the other wants to dominate you, then guess what happens? The indigenous mindset gets overrun by the post-conquest industrial mindset because that's what its motivation is. And so given that mindset and that, that dynamic, um, unfortunately, it doesn't spell a very good future for indigenous communities because the very nature of them is to allow the other to be. But the, it, when the other is there to squash you and dominate you, then that's what happens. Now, how do we get out of that um, dynamic? Well, there are various techniques. Um, I was just recently watching a, a series on, on Netflix um, about psychedelics. And um, uh, first of all, the first one was on LSD and then psilocybin. And I think the, the next one was on MDMA. But the, the point of that is that these mind-altering consciousness elevating substances, which are often referred to as um, drugs, are really medicines that can shift our way, even just one experience of a profound um, altered state of consciousness can be enough to shift you for the rest of your life. Yeah. So am I advocating that everybody goes out and starts dropping acid or taking mescaline or ayahuasca? I'm not. But I am saying that for those who are interested in cultivating a shift in their mindset, it might be appropriate for them to look into these as alternative ways of opening their mind, expanding who they are, their sense of who they are in relationship to the world around them. And of course, we know that that kind of shamanic experience is um, very common in indigenous communities and, and very rare. In our, but something like that, I think, needs to happen. We need to um, honor different ways of knowing, right. not just be so um, wedded to our own scientific and rational way of understanding the world. Now, you've written about Alfred North Whitehead, and I've, I'm always curious about his work because yeah. uh, he sounds a little bit indigenous himself. Um, and he's written about something called the radical naturalism. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious about what, what he was getting at with that. Huh. Does that ring a bell? I, oh, I absolutely. No, it does. It, it, yeah. it rings a, yeah, it does ring a bell. The, the reason I kind of hesitated is that I'm a, a deep fan of Whitehead's work. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my work has been inspired by his um, process philosophy, his process mm -hmm. metaphysics. Um, and and as far as I'm aware, um, the, the phrase radical naturalism was something that I used in one of my books. I, I'm not sure that it's a phrase that Whitehead used, but it's a phrase that's definitely inspired by Whitehead's um, philosophy. And his philosophy could be summed up. It, 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 the name of that philosophy is panpsychism, which basically means that all of the natural world has psyche, has consciousness, has feeling, has sentience. So the idea of consciousness all the way down is central to Whitehead's view of reality. So by that, he means not just 
the human animal is conscious, but every cell in our body has its own cellular consciousness. Every molecule in every cell has its own molecular consciousness, every atom, its own atomic, and so on. That even electrons have some degree of feeling, some degree of awareness, some degree of, of, of what he calls prehension. They're able to feel and be aware of the world around them and the possibilities that exist, and then can make choices. And that, that that's built into the very fabric of reality itself. It's not something added on that evolves when brains come into being miraculously. So yeah, I'm deeply, deeply influenced and impressed by Whitehead's um, um, philosophy. And although he didn't write about indigenous cultures, um, his, and I don't think he even called himself a panpsychist, but he's probably one of the, the greatest panpsychist philosophers that has existed. Um, but if we look at what panpsychism claims, it's actually a philosophical complement to the indigenous worldview. Philosophically, Whitehead is saying that the whole world is aware, the whole world is feeling, and we're part of this web and matrix of shared feeling. And if we walk out into nature, we can experience that. Well, that, that's implied in panpsychism, but it's lived in the, the world of indigenous peoples. That's how they live. So Whitehead's approach to philosophy is, if you like, the Western attempt to give a rational foundation to what the indigenous communities have been living for millennia. That's deep. <laughs> I think my question though, this is just as you were saying that, Christian, I was I was just mulling this over in, in my head. If and I agree, right, that that's my sense as I spend more and more of my time in the natural world, I feel that deep connection that everything is connected. And I think that's been very good for me to kind of have an experiential sense of it. Yeah. If everything is connected though, why is it that, you know, was this just a modern thing, but why is it that most people feel that they are individual, that they're not connected, that it is ultimately all about themselves? Because if you look at how most people operate in the Western world, it is very individualistic. It is built on a premise of, I am who I am, separate to everything else. I mean, even if you look at the, the kind of the narrative of competition, consumption, outdoing the next person, it's all about me. Why is it that people can't access this understanding that everything is connected? Or is that just something, as you noted earlier, depending on how far you want to go back, right, from the Greeks or, you know, just the the formation of agriculture is that the thing that shifted shifted us out of that that way of of of, of knowing or that way of being well yes yes actually um we can go right back to democritus and the early greeks and and the notion of atoms and atomism i mean that whole notion of being individuals is an atomistic view of how we are related to the world and um just before this um interview i was just revisiting some of the the sections in my book radical knowing and um uh i've just lost my train of thought what was i saying um so i think it comes back to like why is it oh, the at atomism yes yeah, yes yes yeah. yes so 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 because we we've bought into this atomistic 
um, paradigm. We, we see ourselves as atoms, as individuals, that in certain circumstances either will be forced to or will naturally come together as atoms and form molecules, relationships. And so that's, the, that's what we are educated to believe, that first and foremost, we are atomistic individuals, isolated individuals. That um, was reinforced, of course, in the, um, by René Descartes in the 17th century uh, with the notion of the in individual isolated ego, that, that who I am is my ego and only I have access to my ego and nobody else does. And so um, uh, basically the only way that you or I, or you could ever, anybody else could know what I'm feeling or thinking is if I communicate that to you through words, through an exchange of energy. Um, and we've been educated to assume that that's the way reality is. Well, in my explorations, both experientially, but also academically, I came to realize that actually that has it upside down. It's the other way around. It's not like we are first and foremost individuals who then come together and form relationships. No, our deepest nature is intersubjectivity, is relationship, that we we come into the world as part of this matrix of relationships. And the image I often use is like an ocean. That's the fundamental status, the fundamental nature of who we are is this interrelatedness. And then from time to time, a wave will arise in the ocean, a wave of individuality. So each of us is an individual. I'm not denying our individuality, but it's not our deepest nature. Our individuality will in time come to an end and we... What, whatever we is will then become part of the oceanic matrix again. We will return to our natural um, deepest nature, which is intersubjectivity. So relationship I see as fundamental. We are always in relationship, mm -hmm. but we've been educated to think otherwise and to be unconscious. So there are lots of things overlapping and, and working together. The fact that we've been educated to focus on reason as, as our way of knowing the world, couple that with our um, being educated to think we are isolated individuals, then we are basically shut off from being open to feeling our connectedness, not just to other humans. And when I say we are in relationship, I don't just mean with other human beings, I mean with the entire natural world at every level. Um, so relationship comes first. Individuality is a a temporary effusion, if you like, eruption from the, the ocean of interconnectivity, of intersubjectivity, of relationship. That's 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 amazing. I was just, again, I was thinking there as you were saying that. I saw this the other day. I can't remember exactly, but I can always put it in the show notes. There was a discussion, uh, I think it was a, a Harvard research study, um, where they followed people throughout their lives up until, you know, the, basically the end of their life. And what they, what they noted was, which is fascinating, is that many of these people that they were talking to near the end of their lives had done exceptionally well. They'd achieved all the, the quote-unquote accolades that you should in the kind of materialistic world. Yet the thing that they all talked about, and this, I believe, was across the board, was that the stuff that stood out for them throughout their life, the most important aspects of their life, was relationships relationships with their family, with friends, with people. 
And so that's, isn't that interesting that as they got nearer to the end, even though they had all the trappings of materialism, they didn't say, well, my, my, my life, the best parts of my life was all the money I made or all the cars I was able to buy or the houses around the world. That's not what they said. It came down to relationships. So that really speaks to what you just said, Christian. Yeah, and what I've noticed, I'm going to assume that you've probably noticed something similar, is that although we've been educated, we meaning us folks in the, in the industrialized world, to think of ourselves as atomistic, isolated individuals who have the ability to form relationships, at some level, either in a conversation or if they're reading a book or watching a movie, when the idea of universal connectivity arises or that everything is interconnected, people seem to have an intuitive sense of, oh yeah, yeah. It, it's something that is still alive in, in every one of us at some level, but it's being educated out of us. But it's the, the that feeling, that realization is still there deep within us. I think it's deep within every sentient being, the recognition that we are all part of what I call the cosmic democracy. What I mean by that is that every, every sentient being gets to choose at every moment from the available possibilities. It will choose one of those and if you like collapse it into an actuality in the next moment, that's how evolution progresses at every level, at the atomic level, at the subatomic level, at the level of humans and other animals. We, we feel instinctively our connectedness to everything else. Mm. And all we need to do is to take the time to get out of our heads and get into our bodies to feel, literally embodied feeling, our connection with the world around us. As far as I can tell, nature is constantly emitting signals and messages among itself, but also those messages are available to us. Shamans and indigenous peoples are, are, are trained to be attentive to those messages and respond to them, to read them, to understand them, to feel the meaning in those messages. Those messages are available to us too, but we need to retrain ourselves to be more embodied, not to, not to just think our thoughts, but to, to train ourselves to feel our thinking. It seems to me that, I said earlier that relationship comes first and individuality comes second. Well, another version of that, a variation of that, is that feelings come first and thoughts are secondary. And that, that occurs both in our individual lives but also over the span of evolution. Long before languages evolved, there were beings who were feeling their way around the world. Every sentient being has the capacity to feel. So feelings come first. But then as individuals, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, as they say, is that our individual growth is, a, is a, an echo of the growth through evolution. So when we are first born, we don't have language. But we are sentient beings. The baby in his crib can feel the warmth of the sun or the cold of the wind or the, the, the tenderness of its mother's breast or whatever. So we feel our existence in the world first. And then gradually, as we become socialized, we learn language. And then we begin to think. Once we have the ability to have language, we begin to think. 
And then we are trained to rely more and more on our thinking capacities and to distrust our feeling capacities, even though those were the foundation for the thinking. And one of the, the great advantages I see in most psycho-spiritual practices, particularly those that in, involve embodiment, like meditation and mindfulness, is to pay attention to what's actually going on in our bodies at every moment and to notice the sensations. And, and when we do that as a practice, eventually we will notice that these feelings kind of bubble up through our, our system, through our body, and emerge as thoughts. And then we have been conditioned and trained to focus on the end products, on the thoughts, not on the process that gave rise to those products. In, in effective psycho-spiritual practices, and my, one of my favorites is Bohmian Dialogue, we are trained to actually know, stop and pay attention to your feelings and notice that all your thoughts began as, a, as an, an unverbalized feeling in your body. And then eventually it came up and it became a thought and you can then give voice to the thought. I call that learning to feel our thinking. When we speak reason that's rooted in feeling, it's much more coherent. But instead, most of the time, what we do is we speak reason from our head. We think our thoughts, and it's shallow. It, it doesn't have the same degree of authenticity as somebody who's speaking from an embodied sense. And their thoughts and their speech is something that is arising from their feelings in their body. So feeling comes first. That's another major shift we need to, to make, is to recognize um, that we really need to cultivate awareness of our embodied feelings much more than, than we do. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. Well, that speaks to some of my experience. I've been to some of these um, academic conferences and mm. I always get a kick out of it because they are so Cartesian and the body is just not invited to the conference at all. I mean, you get up on the stage, you get behind the lectern or the podium, and you deliver your rational content, but the presenters typically have a death grip on the podium, and the, the body is really not invited to the party. And that's why I find those conferences to be really um, fragmented and not, not even close to being holistic. So we don't, we don't trust the body uh, as a people. And so these these practices are are vital for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a great description. Yes, yes, um, yeah. And and um, in the days before COVID, <laughs> um, when I would give lectures, um, I always made a point of making sure I moved around the stage. My body had to be part of the presentation, not just my voice and my my tongue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we uh, we never really quite got over the uh, Copernican revolution because it was uh, we were wrong. We were wrong about the structure of the solar system. And from that point forward, a lot of people said, well, you can't trust the body anymore because look what happened. It got the solar system wrong. And so ever since then in academia, it's been uh, no, you got to You got to prove everything you say and, and feelings don't really matter. There's such a deep, deep paradox in that whole um, network of assumptions 
because the, the dominant paradigm in the industrial mindset is materialism, scientific materialism, that the fundamental nature of the world is physical stuff, matter, physical energy. And that mind or consciousness is kind of an epiphenomenon, kind of a byproduct that sometimes may spin off, but that it's not the fundamental reality. So embodiment is actually built into the very paradigm of materialism, but it's a dead embodiment. It's embodiment without sensation, an embodiment without feeling, an embodiment without consciousness. Um, and so although the dominant paradigm is materialistic, it's materialism, the way it's presented is as if only the rationality of that occurs in the brain of these bodies was of significance, and the rest of the body itself is ignored or marginalized. So on the one hand, there's this celebration of the physical world, and then on the other hand, the ignoring of the physicalness, the embodiment of, of who we are. And of course, one of the, the main themes that I like to emphasize in my work is it's not a question of either or, it's not a question of either the mind or either the body, either individuality or relationship. It's all of these and the questions that we need to ask ourselves at every moment, every day is how do I advance my ability to integrate these apparent opposites? And they're not really opposites, they're complementarities mm -hmm. that in my way of understanding and experiencing the world, there is no body without consciousness, without mind, without sentience. And there is no consciousness without embodiment. The idea of consciousness floating free, floating free of the body when we die, to me, is incoherent. It's it's kind of a, it's a, it's the last dying gasp and wish of the of the ego who wants to survive at all costs. Um, so the idea of consciousness being disembodied to me is is um, very very problematic. So to me, consciousness is always embodied. There is never a consciousness without its complement of embodiment. And wherever there is embodiment, there is feeling, there is sentience, there's awareness, there are values. I think what might be helpful as we near the end, Christian, just I think it'll just kind of bring everything together and give it some context for, for people and make it more practical is maybe talk to us about your what you wrote about the four gifts of knowing, because I think that's quite relevant to what you've been saying right now. Oh, yeah, sure. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I spoke earlier about the two modes of consciousness, the pre-conquest and the post-conquest modes of consciousness. Um, and so how do we how do we learn to be aware of, of, of these different modes of consciousness? And then how, how do we integrate them? Hmm. Well, in my work, I've identified what I call the four gifts of knowing or four ways of knowing. There's the scientist's gift of using our senses to see, hear, touch things in the physical world, and then a methodology to test the data that we gather through our senses. That's the scientist's gift. The scientist is the gift of the senses and a method for analyzing the data of the senses. Next is the philosopher's gift. The philosopher's gift is the gift of logic and reason and language. So the philosopher's job is to use language with the most coherent and responsible precision possible, usually feeling, and 
what I call alternative states of knowing, alternative states of consciousness. And I use the word alternative rather than altered. Most people will talk about altered states of consciousness. And I'll just say a little bit about why I prefer alternative. When we talk about an altered state, it implies that there is some baseline state, which is the normal state, that gets disrupted if we ingest some medicines or something, and then we have an altered state. And so there's an implied preference or default back to what we call the ordinary state of consciousness. And I think that privileges the ordinary state of consciousness in a way that's unnecessary. I prefer to say that we have the ability to shift into alternative states of consciousness, depending on the requirements, depending on our goals and aims that, that we want to achieve and our interests. So alternative states of consciousness and feeling, those are the, those are the marks of, of the shamanic way of knowing, the shamanic gift. And then there's the, the mystic's gift, the fourth way of knowing, the fourth gift is the mystic's gift of intuition that's accessed in silence, that I say, I call it sacred silence. And of course, there's very little we can say about that because it's about silence and, and anything we say about it is almost a contradiction. Um, but it's still a profound way of knowing. So I regard silence itself as a way of knowing when we pay attention again to the sensations, our embodied sensations and, and how they are connecting us with the world around us. So those are the four gifts of knowing. And I don't privilege one over the other. Um, if we want to develop a technology to achieve some pragmatic goal, then the scientist's gift is very, very useful to use our senses to gather information about how the world is actually constructed. If we want to figure things out, then using the philosopher's gift of reason and logic is, is very appropriate. If we want to balance our checkbooks at tax time, um, using the shaman's gift of feeling and alternative states or the mystic's gift, not very useful if you want to balance your checkbook. The philosopher's gift of reason and logic is very useful in, in that situation. But then there are other situations if we want to engage with the deep mysteries of being alive, the existential mysteries. Well, reason and logic are very, very limited when we in, encounter those uh, situations. Then we will be... Um, drawn more to the shaman's way of knowing through feeling our connection with the world, engaging in alternative states of consciousness, which opens up different domains of the world that are not available to us, not available to us when we're in our so-called ordinary state of consciousness. Um, and then the mystic's gift of intuition, which can give us this sense of just everything is one, that... I'm not going to say too much about that because I realize everything I say about that is a distortion. Mm. But I think we all have a sense of what I'm referring to. That's to be experienced rather than talked about. And it's not that one is is one way of knowing is superior to to the others. It depends on the on the the project at hand. And what I like to do in my own life and what I encourage by uh, students and others is to Cultivate all four ways of knowing and then the awareness of when it's appropriate to use one way more than another, but even more than that, the times when what works best is to integrate all four ways of knowing. They don't have to be separate. We can engage our senses. We can engage our logic. We can engage our feeling. We can engage our sense of 
cosmic unity all at the same time. So we don't need to separate them, but there are times when it works to focus on one rather than the other. So that's, if you like, my one of my key projects in life is to identify and then integrate the four gifts of knowing. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful and powerful framework. I mean, anybody listening to what you just said, I, that's really good because it gives them some context, right? It gives them a, a framework to use. And just, you know, whoever's listening to this, if they want to go deeper into that, they should definitely get your book, Radical Knowing, because that's where you explore that. And I think that's definitely a worthwhile read. So as we come to the end, Frank, anything else you want to say before we let Christian go and be respectful of his time? Oh, well, speaking of practices, one thing that I find really helpful is when I go for a hike, I go to a place where I can sit and look at nature around me. And I'm really trying to see things differently. So I listen to indigenous voices that say, I am the land, the land is me. I'm the river, the river is me. I'm the forest, the forest is me. And I try and adopt that view. And it's really interesting and, mm. and I think really valuable. So that, that's a practice that, uh, that I enjoy. Yeah, that great. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, just we we do need to move through nature, through the natural world a lot more than we do in our urbanized lifestyles. Yeah, that's true. Well, thanks, Christian. Really appreciate it. It was fantastic. We, I'm sure myself, I know Frank would agree, we got a lot out of that. And definitely should, we should do it again, because I know you've got yeah, a whole yeah, lot more yeah. to add. So that was a lot of fun. And yeah, we'll let you go. And uh, I'll, I'll chat to you via email. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. And and maybe one day, Frank, we get to meet maybe in Thailand. If, yeah, who knows? Uh, who knows? I, I hope so. It'd be, it'd be wonderful to meet you. Yes. Yeah, likewise. Fantastic. Take care, my friend. Thanks, Take Christian. Care. Have a good Appreciate night. You guys. There we go. So what did you think? Oh, fun. Fun. That, that's, uh, I love this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what he says kind of integrates our kind of our random thinking over the last several episodes. I think he's kind of like what I kept saying all the time is that we really need some kind of approach, a framework, because it's hard when it's just all these ideas out there, but you don't know how to bring them together. And I, I think he's kind of pushing at least myself and, and hopefully for you in a direction that you kind of can see how you could build all of these different ideas into a kind of a cohesive understanding of how to show up in the world as a human animal and not indoctrinated completely by the rational mind and the, the dominant right. narrative of industrialization. Yeah. Yeah. Well, four ways of knowing, I mean, people love little formulas like that because you can count it off on your fingertips and you can remember it. It's yeah, that's really good. Yeah, no, it's yeah. fantastic. Hey, Dr. King here. Thank you for joining myself and Frank on an exploration in improving the health of the human animal. To find out more about our work, you can visit frank at exuberantanimal.com. For coaching with me and to find out more about the Human Animal Project, as well as our retreats, go to humananimal.info. Until the next time, be wild, be free.